Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 12th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Want to join the Unchained team? I'm hiring for an evergreen editor. If you're an SEO whiz with a love of blockchain and crypto, plus strong editorial experience, send your resume and writing samples to hello at unchainedpodcast.com with the subject line, evergreen editor application. One Inch is a top DEX aggregator that finds the best rates across multiple networks. Why use a single DEX when you can use them all? Get One Inch on your phone now or swap on oneinch.io. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's guest is Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. Welcome, Jerry. Hi, thanks for having me. This week, the crypto world was abuzz with the news that the Treasury Department prohibited all Americans from using the privacy service Tornado Cash, which is a crypto mixer. Can you explain what this means and why it is that the Office of Foreign Assets Control levied these sanctions against Tornado Cash? As you say, Tornado Cash is a mixing service, but um, embedded in that, I think, is a bit of confusion. So let's take a step back and first talk, if you don't mind, about Blender.io. So Blender.io is also a mixing service that was um, designated and added to the SDN list, just like Tornado Cash, a few months ago in May. Um, and when that was done, there was nary a peep from anybody in the crypto uh, community. And why was that? It's because you know, Blender.io is a centralized mixing service, meaning that um, it is a company, whether it's incorporated or not, it's essentially a company, a group of persons, um, who provide a service where you send them your Bitcoin, and lots of people do. They mix the Bitcoins together, and then they send them back to you. But in so doing, they take custody of the Bitcoin. They have control over the service. They can choose to provide the service or not. They can choose to provide a service to some people and not others. Um, they can choose to register with Vincent as a money transmitter, you know, et cetera. Um, and so when you add a service, a company, and related Bitcoin addresses to the SDN list, um, the way that OFAC did, you know, that's just a typical sanctions um, uh, 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 action that's taken because in the case of Blender.io, um, North Korean um, hackers um, and other ransomware operators that had been using Blender.io. So far, so good. When you move forward to Tornado Cash, OFAC essentially, in the way that it um, has talked about this in the press and its press release, and in the way that it's done its designation in its um, SDN list update notice, it's identical to the Blender.io designation, but the thing at issue here, Tornado Cash, is completely different. So it's true 
that tornado cache is, you know, there is a tornado cache entity that is a group of persons. Um, because, for example, one of the things that is um, added to the SDN list is the website, tornado.cache. And so clearly there is a person or group of persons who own that website and can control it and run it and decide whatever goes on it, et cetera. And there, uh, you know, there is a DAO that controls um, aspects of some of the smart contracts, in particular um, how they relate to the interface of uh, the, you know, the web interface of, of Tornado Cache. So those, that, that's, there certainly is a Tornado Cache entity. But in addition to that, there is a Tornado Cache application that is uh, a series of smart contracts that are deployed on the Ethereum network that are not owned by anybody, that are not controlled by anybody, because um, they've been, you, know, you can verifiably see that there's no way for anybody to update those smart contracts or change them in any way. What OFAC has done here is conflate these two things, the Tornado Cache entity and Tornado Cache application, all into one designation. And as a result of that, the obligation on all Americans is to do to have no inter interaction with any of the listed addresses and with, with anything related to the Tornado Cash entity. That's what it means. Unfortunately, you know, I think uh, OFAC might have overstepped its authority uh, in doing that. Okay, so essentially it sounds like before it wasn't even thought possible that the government could sanction a smart contract, but that's effectively what happened here. And it's unclear whether or not the government maybe even realized what it did, because initially the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, tweeted that Tornado Cash was sponsored by North Korea. That's inaccurate. So that even sort of calls into question maybe what the understanding of the facts were. I mean, I, it, the tweet was deleted and an accurate one was issued an hour later. So maybe not, but it's not totally clear. Just to understand a little bit more about Tornado Cash, though, so the proceeds of many recent hacks have flowed through there from Ronin, from Crypto.com, from Harmony, Nomad. But in general, what percentage of activity on Tornado Cash do you think is illicit? So from what I've seen reported from Chainalysis and other chain analytic um, firms that do this kind of analysis, it seems that about 30% of the funds that have flowed through Tornado Cash can be attributed to crimes uh, of some kind or another, right? Now, that doesn't mean that the other 70% is all completely legal. We, we're not, we don't know, but it seems like the vast majority seems to be people using it either just to protect their own uh, personal privacy or as part of a DeFi application where it's just part of good operational security, uh, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of everyday people, myself included, uh, can relate to wanting to have privacy for certain financial transactions, if not most of them. So Coin Center published a blog post that differentiated this sanction from the other sanctions, as you just described. And you were kind of implicitly criticizing OFAC if I was sort of reading between the lines here. Can you explain more um, about your position on that? Yeah. So, and this is something that, you know, and just to note, we will be um, uh, putting out a more detailed legal analysis shortly, if not tomorrow, then Monday. And so, you know, our understanding has been evolving. But essentially, I think OFAC made a mistake here for several reasons, right? So one reason, I think, is that they may have overstepped their authority, as I was just saying. So number one, OFAC is authorized by statute and executive order and its own regula regulations. It's authorized to designate 
persons and entities you know, and add them to the SDN list. And what an entity is, is defined in their regulations. And then once you've um, designated a certain person or entity, um, their property is blocked or frozen. Without going into too much detail, because we'll do that in our, in our extensive analysis, it may be the case, and I think it's a very good case, that these um, immutable smart contracts that make up the Tornado Cash application are not an entity, right? So they're not subject, they, they can't be added properly to the SDN list. Um, and, uh, and to the extent you say, well, um, they're not an entity, but they're the property of the Tornado Cash entity, because there are people who make up a Tornado Cash entity. Um, I'm not sure that makes any sense either, because they, these smart contracts are uh, you know, written in such a way where nobody can control them or, or transfer them. So in no way really are they anybody's property. So number one, it may be that, treasure, that the OFAC oversteps its authority when it designated those smart contracts. So that's one critique. The other critique, I would say, is goes to the process. What is the decision process like to add somebody to the SDN list? Well, it's kind of unclear. This is not a public process. This is not a public process where there is public input that's taken. And that's understandable because if there was, you know, if there was a notice posted that we're considering adding Alpha Bank to the SDN list, well, then Alpha Bank would immediately remove all its funds out of the U.S. before it would, uh, it would become final. So it's just, it's, you know, they just do it. The problem here is that when you do that, um, you want to make sure that you're not adding Americans to the SDN list. You're not allowed to add Americans. You're only allowed to add non-U.S. persons to the SDN list. In this case, I'm not sure they're adding an American because, again, I don't think they're adding a person uh, to the list. But certainly a lot of Americans are affected by this, right? And they're affected in two ways. One, a lot of Americans, I think, have funds that are now trapped in the Tornado Cash uh, application and smart contract, where now to retrieve those funds would be a violation of sanctions law. So they're affected in that way. And number two, all Americans are affected because essentially their liberty has been curtailed, right? As an American, I can no longer use this privacy tool. And that is a curtailment of my liberty that has happened without any due process, without any you know, uh, public process at all, without any way for me to, uh, to appeal. And when OFAC, I think, has encountered those kinds of situations in the past, so say, for example, they want to designate a rogue bank of some kind in Panama or Russia, where many Americans might have accounts at that bank, innocent Americans have accounts at those banks, but OFAC wants to say that the bank is sanctioned and you can't do business with the bank. Well, all those innocent Americans who have accounts at that bank are essentially going to have their money frozen. When that happens, OFAC, I think in the past has done and certainly should do a collateral damage impact analysis, right? Before they announce a sanction, they should realize how many innocent individuals, American and non-American, are going to be affected by this and how are we going to deal with that fact? Was that done here? Was there collateral impact, damage impact analysis done here? What steps did they take? Because it seems they've taken none because number one, it, we really need some answer from them about what do people who today have funds trapped there, how are they supposed to get them out? And number two, a completely foreseeable event with this sanctioning that as soon as I 
heard that this had happened, it occurred to me, and I'm sure it occurred to hundreds of people who know anything about crypto, is, okay, they've sanctioned these smart contracts so that, so that it is now a, you know, a crime potentially to send funds to the smart contract or to receive funds from the smart contract. So, if, so of course, what's going to happen is, well, the smart contract is going to continue to run, so somebody is going to use it to send funds to Americans. And then by virtue of having received funds, and this is not a check, this is an Ethereum transaction, you can't reject it, you can't decide to not cash it. Are you now technically in? So this completely foreseeable thing, which happened, right? So Jimmy Fallon, Shaquille O'Neal, lots of prominent people whose addresses are known, had this dusting uh, happen where they were sent funds. Well, what do they do now, right? So these are kind of the foreseeable uh, uh, consequences for completely innocent Americans, you, you think OFAC should have preemptively tried to address before they did this. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about a number of these issues that you just raised. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on one inch a top DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get one inch on your phone now or swap on oneinch.io. Back to my conversation with Jerry. So as you pointed out, for a number of reasons, it may be that either this action was not constitutional or it wasn't done in a way that's even either practicable or, you know, or is Awful. also overreach. <laughs> yeah. um, so in the past, uh, actually not that long ago, I think it was like two or three months ago, you announced that you were going to sue the government over another similar statute that you felt, I think was unconstitutional, the 6050i provision in the, and it was in the infrastructure bill last year. If at this point you determine something similar for this act, then you know, what could happen? Would that also be on the plate or what are some of the other options? Yeah. So I think we're, we're still uh, very much at the preliminary stage of trying to understand what exactly are the legal implications of this action? Was there actually, you know, uh, an overreach of their authority? Are there constitutional questions here? And if so, who the right parties would be to bring a claim? So we're still at that stage, but I wouldn't rule out that Coin Center or somebody with Coin Center's help could litigate this, and indeed that might be uh, what happens. I think the first thing that has to happen is um, we have to uh, try to exhaust all of our administrative um, options for relief. So number one, you know, uh, individuals who have funds trapped at the Tornado Cash Mark contract can apply for a license from OFAC to remove those funds. And you can also potentially get what's called a general license from OVAC. That is basically a, uh, uh, a license for any American who has funds um, trapped there to, to remove them. So yeah, those are things we have, we and many other people who uh, um, are affected by this have to explore. And, and so in the case for people with USDC, then they would just show that to US, to Circle and then get their funds unblacklisted via or unfrozen or whatever it's called in circle? Yeah, so that's interesting because there's a there's an extra layer here, right? Because some people just have ETH 
uh, that they deposited there and they just want to get their ETH back. But if they, they could do that today, they've got the keys, they could just go get it. But if they did that, they'd be breaking the law. So they need to get this license from OFAC in order to do it legally. But then there are people who have USDC there. And the, the thing there is, even if they got this license from OFAC, they really couldn't get the USDC back because Circle has blocked those USDC from moving. So you're right. They would have to go to Circle and say, this is who I am. That was mine. Here's a license. Circle might want to get a license for itself or be part of a general license. So it's very complicated and it's needs to be sorted out. So that's one aspect of it. The other kind of administrative relief that we would want to exhaust is there is a process by which you can have a listed entity delisted. So, you know, for example, let's say that you're listed by mistake because somebody with a similar name was intended to be on the list and you were put on, or maybe you've changed your behavior so that you no lo- you're no longer doing as a company, you're no longer doing the bad thing that got you on the list you want to get out. There is a process by which one can petition, it's a formal petition process to have something delisted. Fortunately, the regulations that provide for the petitioning process only provide for the listed person to be the one who can petition to be delisted. But our argument here is that the listed entity is not a person. So, so how can we do that? So have we already exhausted our our administrative relief avenues or not. So we have to navigate that, you know, and then once we've done that, ultimately, you know, we might want to go to court. And then the question there is, well, who goes to court? Is it, you know, can Coin Center just go to court as somebody who wants to use Tornado Cash in the future and feels that they are um, uh, unlawfully being denied access to it because this thing should not be on the SDN list? Or, you know, Coin Center in the past has received donations through tornado cash is it you know does that give us standing but also you know we could have co-plaintiffs or plaintiffs that we help who have funds there you know are developers etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you know what are the claims is it limited only to OFAC overreaching his authority or do we also think about well are there constitutional issues here does this government action have chilling effects on speech that are sort of separate it's a bit of a stretch claim, but it's it's possible. So, as you mentioned, there are those celebs, um, or or really uh, even anyone with a .eth name, yeah, yeah. who were sent, uh, you know, some fraction of ETH point one, I think, is what I saw on Twitter. For those people, what do you recommend they do? So, I am not a sanctions lawyer, and I'm certainly not your lawyer or anybody's lawyer. So, don't take this as legal advice. I would say, number one, go. If you're worried about this, um, you might want to contact a lawyer. But I think what a lawyer might tell you is that you should notify OFAC about this fact, right? I, and I think if you go look up the OFAC regs, I think it's the case that um, it's spelled out as an obligation of Americans who discover that they have, and typically, typically this. So the way OFAC works, really, we're talking here about it's, it's OFAC applies to all Americans, every individual, but really most, you know, everyday Americans going about their business don't have to think about who's on the SDN and who's not. It's going to be big banks and corporations who have a lot of dealings internationally. We have to worry about this. 
And so what will often happen is that you have a bank that does hundreds of thousands of transactions a day, and then they discover that, oh my God, yesterday we let a transaction through with somebody on the SDN list. And it was totally a mistake. We've caught it, but you know, but it, it, there's strict liability here, right? There's no, there's no compliance here. And so what the OFAC regs, I believe, say is you've got 10 days after you, since when you discover this thing to notify OFAC. And at that point, OFAC will work with you to say, you know, this is what you have to do to mitigate it or do nothing or it's okay, don't worry about it or whatever. So um, if you want to be extra careful, you might want to do that. You might want to seek legal help to do that. But that seems kind of crazy. Anybody with a with a um, .eth, with a known .eth, you know, address or just, just a regular Ethereum address that's known is now hostage to anybody who can just, you know, do this to them. Yeah, I was thinking that this person who trolled the celebs and the .eth people this way, um, they just created a bunch of paperwork for them. Yeah, um, but, it, but it's interesting. I, you know, uh, one way to think to look at this is to say this person was trolling, and it, that might be their motivation. But this person might be just trying to, and I, and I get it. This is not very polite to the people who who they're doing this to. But this person, I'm guessing, might also be just be trying to highlight, put a spotlight on the absurdity of what OFAC has done here. So, what do you think would happen if someone forked the code and just deployed? a copycat version of these smart contracts to a new address? It's a very good question. So it's interesting. You would think that if you did this, this would be something completely different. And so it wouldn't be subject to the sanctions. And people could use that until OFAC added that thing, that address, to the list. And indeed, I was looking at a statement that a Treasury official gave to the Financial Times yesterday, where they said, that the purpose of doing this was to um, basically stamp out the use of this technology by going after Tornado Cash and any reconstituted version of it. So that's interesting. They're not going after a particular entity. They're going after a class of technology, at least the way this statement uh, put it. So, you know, I think there's a good argument to be made that this thing is separate. But you can imagine Treasury saying, well, look, we are sanctioning Tornado Cash. That's a broad thing. And if you're just, you know, redeploying the exact same code, we consider that part of the designation. Now, I think that designation is overbroad because they're designating things that aren't people, but they're doing it. And so if they think that's proper, they could consider any redeployment of the same code to be part of the designation. You know, so we don't know, I guess is the ultimate answer. Yeah. And do you find that this action maybe signals the beginning of some kind of war on privacy in blockchain technology? Like, should privacy coin builders and users be on the lookout for, for things like that to happen in the future? So, um, potentially, but I don't think, but I'm not sure this signals the beginning of a war on crypto in the sense that I don't think this is part of a master plan uh, for which this is the first step, and there are many plan- many other steps already in, in the works that will be you know, uh, uh, doled out. I don't think that's the case. I think this is OFAC and Treasury dealing with a specific thing, which is North Korea sanctions, and they're, they're, they wanted to send a message about that. At the same time, however, I think what's increasingly happening, now that crypto is over 10 years old, we're finally getting to the stage where regulators and, and, and law enforcement have for over a decade, been 
it's been easy for them to go to intermediaries to block transactions, to you know, carry out you know, their purposes. And increasingly, as this technology has matured and the vision of decentralize all the things is becoming more and more real, they're um, coming to the conclusion that when they go to say, okay, well, normally we would go, here's a mixer, let's block it. They realize, oh, wait a minute, there's nothing here. There is a automated process here. And I think at that point, they're applying the same thing. They're applying the same traditional um, rules that they would apply to a centralized entity to decentralized entities. And that's giving us this, these crazy results, right? The same, you see the same thing with the SEC, their recent um, uh, rulemaking that's ongoing about redefining uh, or, or reinterpreting the definition of what an exchange is under the Securities Act, where basically they're saying that potentially smart contracts on the Ethereum network are an exchange. That makes no sense. But they're, they're applying those rules anyway. Okay. All right. Well, we will have to see what happens because in general, I feel covering this space that, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in how these old rules apply in this new world. So thank you for keeping us posted on the latest and I'll probably have somebody back from Coin Center in the future to tell us all about the next development. But yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Coinbase reports a major net loss. The largest U.S. crypto exchange, Coinbase, released its second quarter earnings report and revealed a net loss of $1.1 billion. Even though the loss was higher than expected, analysts had estimated it would be $546 million, CFO Alicia Haas explained that much of it was caused by non-cash impairments, meaning the crypto on Coinbase's balance sheet. Due to accounting rules, its value was measured at the lowest point reached in the quarter. Excluding those non-cash impairments, our net loss would have been $647 million, she said in the earnings call. Coinbase named three reasons for the 30% decline in trading volume against the last quarter. First, U.S. retail customers were less active. Second, a large amount of volume took place at offshore exchanges. Lastly, Coinbase had no exposure to the trading volumes related to the collapses or bankruptcies of Luna, Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, and Voyager. Despite being in the red, the Coinbase team seems confident that the situation will be reversed. Down markets are not as bad as they seem. Down markets are builders' markets. If we continue to focus on building the right products and services, we will emerge stronger than before, the company said in the shareholder letter. Coinbase, highlighting its strong financial position, believes it has ample liquidity to fund its business through a prolonged, stressed market environment. Shares of Coinbase dropped 5% after the release of the report. However, only a day after that, the Consumer Price Index report came out to save the day, 
The market reaction to the inflation numbers spurred coin to rise as much as 7.37% on Wednesday. Ethereum is closer to the merge than ever. Ethereum testnet Gorly was successfully integrated with the beacon chain. This means that it switched from a proof of work to proof of stake consensus mechanism, and it marks another huge milestone for the merge. Ethereum has essentially passed the final test before the merge, as Gorly was the last testnet that needed to switch to proof of stake. Over the past few months, Ethereum developers had also successfully integrated other testnets like Sepolia and Robston into the beacon chain. With the Gorly merge test done, Ethereum should perform the full merge on mainnet next month, likely on September 15th or 16th, according to a call among Ethereum developers. After the favorable outcome of the Gorly merge, Lido, an Ethereum staking platform, saw its token, LDO, jump 18%. LDO is trading at around $2.70 and has a market cap of $800 million. When and if the merge occurs, some analysts, such as Kevin Zhao of Galois Capital, are weighing the possibility of an Ethereum proof-of-work fork. Some exchanges, including Poloniex, BitMEX, and MEXC, have confirmed they would list an Ethereum proof-of-work token. However, Circle, the company behind Stablecoin USDC, announced it will solely support the Ethereum proof-of-stake chain post-merge. In addition, Binance claimed it would be supporting the merge, but did not rule out supporting an ETH proof-of-work coin. In case of newly forked tokens, we will evaluate and consider support for distribution and withdrawal, the exchange said. Inflation goes under and markets soar. July's CPI came in lower than expected, causing crypto prices to rocket. Analysts were estimating 8.7% inflation year over year and 0.2% monthly inflation, but the National Bureau of Statistics reported 8.5% and 0% respectively. The reaction of the market was positive for all assets, including cryptocurrencies. BTC and ETH, the two largest cryptos by market cap, increased more than 7% and 12% respectively. In addition, the total crypto market capitalization expanded by $100 billion, going from $1.1 trillion to $1.2 trillion. This was positive for the markets because it signals to the Federal Reserve that the economy is cooling down, making it unnecessary to raise interest rates. When interest rates are lower, money is cheaper, and there is more capital to allocate into risk-on assets like cryptocurrencies. However, there is no consensus among investors on whether inflation has peaked or whether the Fed will slow down quantitative tightening. Bloomberg columnist Mohamed El Arian said, The Fed has had a couple of really good data reports, which suggests to them that they can continue doing what they're doing because the underlying strength of the economy is still significant. Still, there are others who are more positive. With CPI confirmed to have peaked, Fed pivot is next. Additionally, for ETH, Gorley Merge is later tonight, and mainnet date will be set tomorrow. The stage is set for a move to roughly 2K region by end of week, wrote Hal Press, founder of Northrock Digital. BlackRock offers direct Bitcoin exposure. Investment manager BlackRock launched a private trust that will be focused solely on Bitcoin. The trust will be offered to institutional clients in the United States and is the first product provided by BlackRock that gives direct exposure to Bitcoin. Despite the steep downturn in the digital asset market, we are still seeing substantial interest from some institutional clients in how to efficiently and cost-effectively access these assets using our technology and product capabilities, wrote the company on its website. 
Last week, Coinbase announced a partnership with BlackRock to offer crypto investments to its institutional clients through Coinbase Prime. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager with $10 trillion in assets under management. These two moves show the company's interest in the sector and also hint that institutions may finally be coming. Could MakerDAO dump its USDC? Maker co-founder Rune Christensen proposed that MakerDAO sell its USDC reserves, which would cause the stablecoin DAI to depeg from the US dollar. He floated this idea on the DAO's Discord channel due to the sanctions imposed by the US Treasury on Tornado Cash. The sanctions prompted Circle to freeze USDC in the blacklisted wallets. The sanctions are a lot more serious than I first thought, he said. At the moment, DAI is backed 60% by USDC, according to DAIstats.com. If the DAO decided to abandon USDC, it is most likely that DAI will lose its peg with the dollar. The idea received harsh criticisms from industry leaders. Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin considers it a risky and terrible idea, as he worries about the systemic risks that a major drawdown in ETH prices could cause. Robert Leshner, founder of Compound Finance, was not keen on the proposition either. Converting DAI into a price-elastic asset will ruin it, full stop, he tweeted. Progressive senators ask OCC to rescind rules allowing banks to engage with crypto. A group of Democratic senators, including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, wrote an open letter to the Office of the Controller of the Currency, requesting more restrictions on banks engaging with crypto. In light of recent turmoil in the crypto market, we are concerned that the OCC's actions on crypto may have exposed the banking system to unnecessary risk and ask that you withdraw existing interpretive letters that have permitted banks to engage in certain crypto-related activities. The senators pointed out that in light of the Terra Luna collapse and the bankruptcies of Celsius and Voyager, it is clear that stronger protections are necessary to mitigate crypto's risks to the financial system and consumers. In other regulation news, the Securities and Exchange Commission and Commodities Futures Trading Commission made a joint proposal to require hedge funds to disclose cryptocurrency exposure. This will help protect investors and maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, said SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. On a related note, the United Nations development arm also warned developing countries against crypto. It recommended introducing regulations on crypto usage due to the risks of tax collection, monetary policy, and financial stability. DeFi protocol Curve gets hacked. Curve, a decentralized exchange for stablecoins, suffered an attack worth more than $500,000. The exploit was quite simple. The domain name service, DNS, which basically translates a domain, like unchainedpodcast.com, to an IP address, got hijacked. The hacker's strategy was to modify the IP address translated by the DNS for Curve.fi. Within an hour, Curve announced that it had been able to revert the issue and recommended users revoke all contracts approved on Curve in the previous hours. After establishing that no one is safe from front-end attacks, the Curve team suggested that moving to Ethereum name service, the crypto equivalent of DNS, might be a good solution to this problem. Time for fun bits. It's been a while since we've heard from Dave Portnoy, who might be known to the world as the founder of Barstool Sports, but is known to the crypto community as Paperhands Portnoy for buying $1 million worth of Bitcoin at a price of $11,500, but then selling just weeks later. He's back in the news now because he's being sued over SafeMoon. Also, someone came to his door uh, announcing that he was suing him, and that part isn't necessarily funny. 
Portnoy bought $40,000 of SafeMoon last year, calling it his favorite shitcoin. But now it's down almost 90%, and he's getting sued by people who accuse him of pumping the coin. He tweeted, I'm only guy who loses all his money in SafeMoon and gets sued for it, he added. All right, well, thanks for tuning into this episode. Don't miss Unchained's daily newsletter of the biggest news in crypto every weekday morning. Visit unchainedpodcast.com to subscribe. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Urbanovich, Pam Majimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.